want to talk about this. Oh, and by the way, when I was, one, one more thing I, <clears throat> I feel compelled to mention is that when I was um, a youth camp, uh, really at that same youth camp, <clears throat> there was a, a pastor named uh, Archie Webb. Uh, I, ca I called him Brother Webb. Um, his name was David, but they called him Archie. I don't, that's what he was known by. Uh, and I remember him because he, he really put his arm around me at a certain point and uh, was very encouraging. And uh, I was just starting to share a little bit and just in certain venues, just you know, with my peers. And he came around and he, he basically said, look, Terry, I, I want to talk to you. And he, he called me in and I eventually went to his house and he, he, uh, he talked to me about being open to the possibility of, of pursuing ministry and thinking about taking advantage of, of what he saw at the time as very raw gifts. And, and he said, you know, I really feel like that could be a blessing to people. And I want to, want to encourage you to do this. And uh, I want to challenge you to use your life in, in, in this way. And, he, and I never forgot that because after all those years, and I, last, see, last night I was thinking about camp. I was thinking about this idea of staying young at heart. And I remembered this man. And I remember what he did for me. He pulled down a book from his bookshelf, his private collection. And he he handed it to me. He's 35 years older than me, at least. He hands me this book. It's the first book I ever had on, on uh, preaching. He, and he says, I want you to have this. And he handed it to me. And I never forgot that. And I've kept it all, all this time. In fact, I went down after service last night. I went back into where, somewhere where my books were. And I had an idea of where it might be. And I pulled it out. And I, I opened it up to read it again what I wrote about this man. And the reason I did that was because he modeled something for me beyond just taking an interest. He had a way of being that was so alive. I never forget him because even though he suffered from a blood disease and his body was affected by that disease, and in fact, he, ends up, he ended up dying a lot earlier than he, we would have wanted him to for sure because of that disease. But I never forget how he would carry himself. He was always happy and kind and there was an essential kind of gentle joy about him, but he laughed and uh, he, he never allowed the brokenness of his body to define his spirit. And I'll not forget him. After all these years, I still remember that man, his wit, his love for Jesus, the genuineness of his faith, the contagious quality he had to his life that I found personally extraordinarily life-giving. The way that he modeled staying young at heart, even as he got older, it really did affect me. And I thought of him after all these years, you know, almost four decades later, I thought of him. In fact, it was 10 years after he died <clears throat> that I was, I was in a memorial service that was for him, that I had the opportunity to just speak a little bit, you know, 10 years after I've been pastoring here. So I was around 35. And I remember talking about how much I, I appreciated the quality of his life and the way in which he modeled an authentic, loving, joyful life of, as a follower of Jesus. And perhaps some of us have people who have affected us in such ways. It's possible. And it's possible that that's, we should not underestimate maybe sometimes the effect we can have on other people, right? Just by being open to the possibility of blessing. So I really want us to be thinking about that. You know, because when we talk about staying young at heart, there's no question, Jesus modeled that. He had things to teach us, and he also had things in which he modeled what it means to be young at heart. And there's no question that he, he really had something to say to us. And I honestly, we're, no matter where we are in life, 
Some of us might be at, a, at early stages, some of us might be in the middle of our lives, some of us might be in our advancing years. I really believe this principle has so much for us. And Jesus had a lot to do in terms of teaching us how to do this. And so what I, there's one passage, by the way, that I think more than anything else captures an element of how Jesus models this idea of being young at heart. And it's connected to something that um, I put, put it in your handout. It's connected to a story, a teaching, a parable. Parables were stories that Jesus gave. Now, when Jesus gave these parables, he didn't give them usually as standalones. They usually were connected to something else. The stories themselves, sometimes they were very small and short, were designed to illustrate a principle. The principle usually was connected to a conversation that had been happening. And it's always helpful when we read a parable of Jesus to think about the context, the color, the setting, what's actually happening to get the idea of what Jesus is maybe trying to get at. So just as, as you can, you can look with me in, in Luke 7, and we can maybe look at this together. Because in Luke 7, Jesus talks about this particular parable. We call it the parable of children at play. Uh, and indeed, there was a lot that Jesus is going to say about how he modeled this principle of being young at heart. But I want to suggest that, that even as we look at it, that the, the, why it was given was because John, there was a man named John. John, we call him the Baptist. Uh, Jesus referred to him as John. He baptized people um, unto repentance for the preparation of the coming of Messiah, the Son of God. He said that God had sent him, this man John, to prepare the way, right? And, and as a result, he talked to people about this Messiah and who he was going to be welcoming in. And he was the forerunner of, of and really what he was doing was preparing the way for Jesus. And John had, uh, we know, had been this ama amazing figure. And when he saw Jesus for the first time, he pointed at him and he said, there he is. There's the Messiah. That's the one I've been talking about, the one who's coming. In fact, he said, not only is, is he the king that I've been telling you that, that God is going to bring into this world, he's, he's Messiah. He's the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of this world. He's the fulfillment of all that was foreshadowed, all, every, all those sacrifices, all that spilling of blood would ultimately foreshadow the one who would give his life away. When John saw him, he said, there he is. He pointed at Jesus. He said, there he is. That's the one. That's the one I've been telling you. He's coming. Now, he didn't know. But when he saw him, he pointed him out. He, he, John had said earlier, you know what? You, you think I'm great. People respected him as a prophet of God. But many believed in him. <clears throat> he said, look, I'm not even worthy to tie the shoes of the one who's coming. So he, he acknowledged Jesus. But something happened. John gets imprisoned. He is put, thrown into prison because he had been saying things that were very politically incorrect. He was attacking some of the immoral things that were taking place in the household of the king at that time, King Herod Antipas, who was a vassal ruler who had been placed into power in Galilee by Rome. John is imprisoned. While he's in prison, he hears about some of the things that Jesus is doing. And the things that Jesus is, do is doing didn't fit necessarily into his paradigm of what he thought Messiah was going to do. And so what happens while he's in this confinement, locked in, waiting for something that he's not sure what Herod is going to decide, but he's in this jail cell. He, he starts to wonder, and this happens to sometimes us when we're in places of confinement, did I hear God right? And he starts to think, you know, was I right when I said that Jesus was the Messiah? And he begins to waver. 
He goes, was I being too hasty maybe in, in my identifying of him? This is fascinating because here he's the one that made such a conclusive statement, believing that God had made it so clear. There he is. There's the one. But now he's beginning to have some doubt. So what he does is he calls two of his disciples. He calls a few of his most dedicated followers. And he says, I need you to do something for me. I need you to go. and I need you to ask Jesus again. Was he indeed the one that I was saying he was. Is he indeed? I need him to tell me himself. Can you go ask him again? So that sets the table for what we're about to look at. They go. They go and, and they get there by what they're watching. They watch Jesus and he's ministering. And look what happens. Look what it says here in Luke, in Luke 7. It says that after they ask him this question, right? John wants to know. He wants to know if, if you are who he thought he was, who he thought you were. Can you verify that? Can you, what, do you, what do you want us to tell him? Look what he says, okay? He basically says this, go and tell John all the things you've seen in her. Now, prior to this exchange, they had arrived just in time to see Jesus heal many who were sick and infirmed and spiritually oppressed. Tell him that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. Look at this. The deaf hear, and the dead are raised. The poor have the gospel preached to them. And then he makes one of the most wonderful statements that is recorded. He says, and, and tell him this. Tell him, blessed are those who are not offended by me. And that statement was meant not just for John. It was meant, it had a double meaning. It's fascinating because it was intended also for some of the religious critics and leaders who were in the crowd. We know that a lot of them had, they had already rejected John. They had, they had already decided he wasn't, these, these Pharisees, religious lawyers, uh, these experts in the, in the law, the law was the law of Moses. The law of Moses was the core of the older, what we call the Older Testament. Those were their scriptures. And they had, these men who were learned and power brokers had come to the conclusion that John couldn't be from God. He may have been some kind of prophet, we're not sure. Some of them said he can't because look who he said was Messiah. They had, uh, they had outright rejected him, written him off. He had, plus John had created problems because John had called many of them hypocrites. He says, he had also said do things like, don't do what they do. Maybe you do what they say, but don't do what they do. I mean, he had really indicted the entire system and he was speaking as an outsider to the entire system and he had offended many people. And as a result, many of them now were listening to Jesus and they also were in the process of rejecting him as well. And Jesus is aware of that. And so when he says this, tell John, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, happy is the one who embraces me for who I am. He knew that there were other people who were watching him with a suspicious eye, and they had already written Jesus off. That's what sets the table for what comes. That's what sets the context for the story. And now we're going to see the connection, right? Because that's the atmosphere that Jesus says these words into. Watch what, he, watch what he says. He then says, let me tell you something. I have a story to share with you. He says, to what, and this is verse 31 also again in the handout, you just follow along. To what shall I liken the men of this generation? What are they like? They are like children that are sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another saying, we played the flute for you and you did not dance and we mourned to you and you, you did not weep. And he says, for John the Baptist who I referred to, came neither eating bread nor drinking wine. And you know what you say? You say he had, and he's talking, again, he's talking to this group of people who are listening, his audience, most of whom are, are not accepting him, at least the leadership. 
and you say he has a demon. And then the Son of Man, he's talking about himself, using the term as the prototypical man, and also with the messianic overtone to that phrase. The Son of Man has come. He has come eating and drinking. And you know what you say? Look at him, a glutton, a wine-bibber, an abuser of food and drink, a friend also of task collectors and sinners. But he says this, this phrase that may not make immediate sense. He says, but I'll tell you this, wisdom is justified of her children. Now, imagine that moment for a moment. Jesus looks at them. He's answering John, but he's also talking to them. And he shook his head, and I think he did, because he realized, look, this is what he's basically saying. He says, if I would put it in a slightly different way, he says, listen, you know, you know how the children play in the marketplace? This is something they would have all had, a, they would all be able to access quickly. You know how you see the children and how they play in the marketplace in the middle of the day? You, would, you ever watch them play their games? You ever watch how sometimes they mimic the adults? They see the funeral processions, they see the weddings. These are the big celebrations in their culture. Still are for us too. And Jesus says, you know how in the marketplace the children start playing and they start trying to play different games and sometimes they, have you ever seen it? Sometimes they spend more time arguing than playing. One of them, I'm sure you've seen it, um, all of a sudden decides they're not gonna play. You've all seen those children who won't play because it wasn't their idea. They just wanna sit it out. So someone says, come on, let's play funeral. And they say, no. Okay, well then, let's play a wedding. And they say, no, I don't want to play. They're childish, and they won't play unless they get their way. That's what Jesus is saying. He's basically indicting their closed-mindedness and apathy. He saw them as stuck in a box, refusing to, to, to really open up, to move, regardless of the appeal that was being made. And part of what Jesus was doing here is he's describing, oh, can you see what else is going on? And I think it's, as you, once you see it, you'll see it clearly. He's also describing, and this is the reason we're bringing it up into our discussion, he's describing the difference between John's ministry and his ministry. What he's basically saying is that you rejected John's ministry and, and basically you're rejecting mine as well. Now, John, in contrast to Jesus, his ministry approach was basically like a funeral. John was, I don't know how to say it, he... He, didn't, he, abs, he was an ascetic. He, he abstained from things. He didn't drink at all. He, was, he, he stood outside of culture. He lived in the wilderness. He didn't engage people. He came out like a blaze of fire. He was super intense. He, was, he just threw out things. People didn't know what to do with him. They'd never seen anything. He reminded them of, of like someone of an Old Testament prophet with, with like fire in his eyes. He was so intense, so passionate, so full of zeal. John does not engage life. He stands outside of it. He disconnects from culture and speaks into it and says, this is what God is saying to you. It's he was powerful. Jesus says, he came and it was like a funeral. You wanted nothing to do with him. In fact, he says, you know what else you described him as? You, you basically called him a demon. You said he was like a crazy man. He came and you said, no, you're crazy. Jesus said, I, on the other hand, I came in a very different way. My way of being, quite in contrast to John's funeral approach, was more like, what? A wedding. It was joyful. It was life-embracing. It was full of celebration. I was happy. I'm, ha I'm engaging. I'm not outside. I'm in, I'm, I'm in the... Look, 
Jesus is saying, I'm right there. And, and he goes, and you can almost hear Jesus' words with sadness when he says, but, but you want nothing to do with me. In fact, he, sa he said, not only that, really, the truth is, you've done more than that. You have insulted me, and you have demeaned me. You've called me a glutton and a wine-bibber. Basically, you say, I, I abuse food, and I, I abuse drink. I, you say that I am, <laughs> which, by the way, that was meant to undermine his credibility, right, as a teacher, yet alone as the promised one of God. And they said, not only that, you say something else about me. You say I am, I'm a friend of the most notorious of the immoral people. And you basically say I'm, I'm a friend of sinners. And here's the deal. The irony, of course, was of all those accusations that were levied against him, it was the last one that was the most accurate. He, he, he was a friend of sinners, but they meant it as a pejorative. They meant it as an insult. They meant to say, you cannot be a holy, you are not a good man, you are not a righteous man, you are not from God. This is the kind of people you mix with. And Jesus was saying, yeah, that's true, I do mix with them. But for a very different reason than what you're suggesting and implying. In fact, he said something else. He basically said, look, the so-called bad people, which I am a friend of, by the way, he says, I, I, I do care for them. The difference is, and, I, and if you've listened to what I have to say, I engage them. It's true. I was not like, I am inside. Jesus, look, Jesus judged without being judgmental. Jesus kept the law without being legalistic. Jesus was full of grace, but truth. He walked that balance line. Jesus engaged culture, but was not corrupted by the culture. He's, he's a, he was able to, to be gracious and kind and loving. At the same time, he was able to challenge people to turn in a good direction, reminding them that God was calling them to make the change in their lives. You're better. God can do this. It was about, so here's the thing. What they were using as an indictment to sort of demean him, he saw it in a very different way. He goes, you're right about that. He goes, but I'm calling people to the expansive kingdom of God. And Jesus never, he didn't, if you check it out, he didn't, he wasn't participating in anything that was immoral or criminal. It's not, he, he lived a very aligned life. He was extreme. Look, no one ever lived like him. At the same time, there was such a graciousness to him. There was such an, an openness to, to it, sharing with all kinds of people what God was inviting them into. And that comes out all the time. And Jesus was saying, look, what John, John was like a funeral in a way. It's true. And, and you said he's crazy. I've come with a wedding invitation. And you know what you say? You say, uh, I'm, I'm not even a good man. I'm not a righteous teacher. Look, what's, and then he says this. What's it gonna, look at that last phrase. What's it going to take to satisfy you? Wis look at that. Wisdom is, what, what is he actually saying there? He's reminding them, look, nothing can satisfy you. You're like the, ch this is what, this is the connection. You're like the children, do you see it? You're like the children in the market. What he's letting them know is, look, and you're making, you're, you're saying, look, if it's not, I'm, we're not playing. 
And he's saying, look, you're going to make a mistake here. You're making a big mistake. You're try he's trying to get them to understand that their stubbornness is going to cause them to miss the wonderful thing that God was doing right in front of their eyes, right in their midst. He was making it clear that their decision to reject him revealed a lack of wisdom that was ultimately going to cost them in the end. He was like saying, look, your choice here to reject me is revealing that you lack the wisdom and openness to what God is doing right in front of your eyes. It's powerful, right? Now, here's how it connects to us. This is at least how I process it out. One of the things that I think is so important to remember, for, I hope for all of us, is that we're all invited to exercise wisdom, embrace Jesus for who he is. If I can put it this way, we're all invited to the wedding. We're all invited to dance the dance of grace. And I'm not just talking about salvation. I'm talking about in this life. We're invited to the dance. To find my rhythms, Jesus says. Know my ways. Remember, he's not a funeral. He's a wedding. He's a celebration. He's life engaging. When they saw Jesus, and it's been said before, they did not say, oh no, the unhappy man. <laughs> they didn't say that. They're what, they're, listen, there are times where the Lord is going to want to remind us, please remember my way is a way of joy and a way of life and a way of blessing and a way of grace. And it doesn't mean we're not going to have problems, but sometimes we've got to remember is that, you know what, God wants our hearts to be whole and healing and improving and growing. And not, that's why I went back to that example I opened up with of the man who, who even though his body was failing him, his heart was so, so alive with the goodness of God. I, I was reminded that Paul said, though my outer person is failing me, it's, it's, I'm getting old. He says, it's not, it's not gonna be, I'm not going to be able to make it with this body too much longer. But he says, though my outer person is failing, my inner person is being renewed day by day. There was something inside. So again, the, this life with Jesus, it's the wedding life. It's the celebration. It's the dance of grace. It's not meant to be boring and sad and austere and defeated. That's not, and I am not denying that there are not going to be things that are hard that we all face and things that are going to discourage. I get that. I do get that. I understand that. But I'm going to tell you this. The Lord also wants to fill us with his joy. And he wants to help us get past things. He wants to teach us to have a big spirit, not a small one. He wants to help us not get stuck. And that leads to the second piece here, which is this. A lot of times we have to be careful of being stubborn and resistant. I look at the people that Jesus was talking to. And he's saying, look, you guys, you are, you are, you are getting stuck. Especially, look, we have to watch out for a stubborn and resistant will, what I would call a fickle faith that only really is willing to be vibrant when God does it on our terms. Like those, like those, he's like Jesus was saying, you won't play. You won't play. It's not my idea. I'm not playing. Well, do you want to play? No, I don't want to play. Okay, then what about if we do this? What about, you want to play wedding with us? We'll, we'll like, no, I don't want to play. Parable, prodigal son, younger brother, <sighs> cashes his inheritance, tells his father, I, I'm bored of this place. It's killing me. I got to get out of here. I need to live my life. Can I have my money now? I, I, don't, 
I just need it now. I want it all cashed in. I want to go and live my life. He gets his money. He lives his life. He, get, it, he makes a mess of his life. Jesus says that he's like totally loses everything, gets abandoned by his friend. He's a mess. He's almost dying. He says, I'm going home to my father. He goes home. And I'm, I'm just paraphrasing it as fast as I can. He goes home. He goes, I'll just ask him if I can get a job. I won't ask for anything. I'm not even worthy to be his son. His father sees him from afar and, and says, look, my son who was dead is alive. My son who was lost is found. Bring out the rope. We, we're going to have a celebration like no others. And then we, but Jesus doesn't stop there. He says there was another brother, the older brother who had been faithful. And he's there, and he, someone says to him, have you heard the news? Your brother, who we all thought was dead, and we never see him again, he's come home, and Father wants us to give him a celebration. Come on, you're going to miss it. I'm not going in. They tell the father. He goes out and says, son, come on, what are you doing? Your brother who was lost is found. It's not right that we celebrate it. And you can see him. And you know, I love the way Rembrandt captures it. He, he, he doesn't even try to set it up in ancient times. He, he has the older brother standing with his arms crossed. Yeah. Stuck. I won't go in. I won't rejoice. I feel unblessed, unappreciated. All this time I've been working, you never threw me a party like that. No, I won't go. Come on. No, I won't. I won't. I won't, I'm, I won't go in. Stuck. The, the Lord, look, that's what can happen to us. It doesn't go our way. Someone else gets a blessing. We wanted that blessing. Can I rejoice with that? It's hard. Can I still remember I'm in the wedding? Come on. I hear him almost reasoning, come on, come on, open your heart, come on, don't be that tight. The, this, is what, this is what the Lord is getting at. It's like the same thing, right? You guys, what's wrong with you? Come on, can't you see? God's trying to get a hold, he's trying to talk to you, he's trying to show you what he's doing. You, why, why are you being so resistant, why? Why, come on, he's, a, he, he's actually not, if you really think about it, Jesus, he's not actually in his judgment. He's actually trying to reach to them. Can I tell you a story? Don't be like that. Don't do that. You're going to miss it. And that leads to the third, the, this, the third thought that I had around this, which is, to me, and it brings us all the way back, full circle, right? Staying in our heart. He wants us to cultivate a heart, listen, that has in it a childlikeness that is tender, that is open to wonder. okay. Children, you've seen it. <laughs> they see stuff for the first time. They live with big eyes. We, can we, do we, we just, as life goes on, we stop noticing stuff. We don't have the heart of wonder. Man, we have to be, look, one of the things I loved about, I loved a lot of things about Jesus. I still do. But one thing that was amazing to me here he is in the process of saving the world. And, one, and he said to his disciples, hold on a second. You see that lily right there? That flower right there? 
I tell you, Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. <laughs> the beauty of God is all over this. Have you looked at one lately? Another time he said, you see there's a sparrow on the tree. He says, you know, every sparrow on the tree, God sees it. Don't say for a moment, don't ever think for a moment that God doesn't care about your life. If he cares about the bird in the tree, how much more do you mean to him? Oh, in the temple. Do you see, do you see that woman? Do you see that woman? What woman? That widow right there. The one that's giving the money in the, in the box that's for the poor. That's where the poor give their money. He says, I tell you right now, she has given more than them all. What do you mean? They gave out of their abundance. Good. She gave everything. Do you understand that? But it's only two pennies. Do you don't understand? You don't see it. Here's one of the keys to staying young. It don't matter what age we are. We have to periodically wonder at small things. We need to be grateful. We need to be gracious. Lord, help me. A lot of times what's going to break us out, you guys, is just saying, Lord, help me to get unstuck. Help me to, get, help me to look at some things I would just walk past all the time and say, Lord, let me see the beauty there all around me. People that love me. Um, friends. Uh, gifts. You, you who've given me everything. Where are we going to focus? Focus on what I'm not getting? Focus on what I'm being blessed by and with. Come on. I hear Jesus say to me as well at times. Come on. What's wrong with you? Come on. Don't be defined like that. Live with intentional wonder. Be open. One of the keys to staying young at heart is to stay open to beauty that's all around us, little things. And let us, please, let's not wait till we're in the middle of a crisis to do it. Let's do it while we can, because we, crisis, that's one of the gifts of crisis. Now I can go way off now. I can go way, like way. I'll start floating down this road, <laughs> and I won't return for a long time. So I need to come back and say that I think the Lord does really want to teach us how to stay young at heart. I've seen older people like the man I referred to at the beginning, who modeled in his advanced years a youngness of heart, a youthfulness of heart, a love in his heart that was not defined by his failing body, a genuineness of faith that was joyful and contagious. Didn't mean he didn't have down moments, but he didn't get defined by them, and he didn't stay there a long time. And I've watched people who are much younger with so much, and sometimes their heart is old and and shrunken down and tight, grabbing for stuff, clutching for things, afraid, not living well. The way of Jesus is something that is meant to carry us through every season of our life. <sighs> All right, here's how it's going to work. Remember I mentioned that uh, doing this project, this, this teaching is in tandem with Rusty Roof, who we've been working together on the Life App series. And what, I've, what we've asked Rusty to do is for a couple of minutes to share a practical piece. He's going to base it around the acronym FRESH, how to stay fresh. And he's going to use that as a way of just kind of giving us some practical ideas. I tried to lay a biblical groundwork for this idea. Watch what he does. And by the way, he's going to gear it towards maybe some of us who are in the middle or you know, maybe advancing stages of our lives. But it, honestly, the principles apply to wherever we are in whatever life, it will. Just, so check it out, and then we'll come back around. We'll have our 
closing offering time, we've got a closing song to share that will bring it all together. But here we go with Rusty's take on what we've just shared. Pastor Terry just got done teaching on staying young at heart. And now it's time to explore a few ways that we can do this at home, on the job, and with our friends and families. First, let's get the bad news out of the way. We all have an expiration date on us. We don't know when it is, but if we live to be old enough, we'll go through all the stages of aging and our bodies will wear down and eventually wear out. Even so, how we age, we can have influence over. I like to say that if I'm so blessed, I want to die young at a ripe old age. Let me say that again. I want to die young at a ripe old age. And since I know my body can't be young when I'm old, I must keep my mind and more importantly, my attitude youthful. So how can we, within God's instructions, keep our attitude youthful and fresh? We need an app for this. So let's call it the Fresh app. Let's start with staying fascinated. Think about the look on a child's face the first time they see something they've never seen before. It's not only curiosity, it's fascination with what they might learn, experience, and encounter. Yes, we can stay fascinated too, but that means we need to be open to what is new and what is different. And we will never be so unless we get out of our rut and try something new today and every day. Maybe we need to visit someplace like the new San Francisco Exploratorium, just to watch the children's reactions, to remind ourselves of what it means to be fascinated, and then make our own list of things we wanna see or listen to or explore every day. When we stop being fascinated, it's a good indicator. It's time for us to freshen up. Our attitude is also influenced by staying rejuvenated. You see, we can keep our attitude rejuvenated by keeping our minds filled with the positive and the uplifting and always learning and always growing. We know that we can start each day with the good news of God's word, but also by starting each day with something positive versus maybe jumping right into the debates and the contention of social media or the talk shows. There are actually apps and blogs that will send daily morning positive messages to us. I was told by a cardiologist once that the best thing we can do for our physical body rejuvenation is to start each day with a big glass of fresh water. Let's find our attitude fresh glass of water for each and every day. Let's also be enthusiastic. As we grow older, it becomes harder to remain enthusiastic. It was when we were young, when we would single out something special each day that we looked forward to. What if we were to write down each evening one thing that tomorrow we could be enthusiastic about? We have much to be enthusiastic about in our lives if we just stay grateful and thoughtful about them. Now, since we're talking about life apps, here comes a tech term for you, synchronous. This means to be connected. In our case, it means to be connected to what's going on around us. We're taught to not be of the world, but we certainly can't escape being in it. So we should make the most of what we're given. I like to stay synchronous because I find many opportunities to relate what's going on in the current world for how I carry and conduct myself for God's purposes. I use the three M's, 
movies, music, and magazines to stay current. Now that doesn't mean I have to see, listen, or read things that are not good for my mind, but there's plenty that is great, relevant, and current that can keep us synchronous and fresh if we'll only seek them out and watch out for becoming too rigid or not being open to the new and current. Lastly, staying young at heart can be helped along by remaining hopeful. This is where our life platform as believers of Jesus give us a real reason to stay young at heart because our hope for everything today and eternally is built upon God's promises to us. If we fully believe this to be true, then no matter how bad things are all around us, in the big or in the personal picture, we can be hopeful. The poet Alexander Pope wrote, hope springs eternal. How better to stay young at heart than to have hope? So there we have it, our Fresh Life app. Let's take this app into our lives and do our best to stay young at heart.